Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk in a World Where Nothing Means Anything Anymore and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Okay, so I have a friend named Elizabeth. And one of the things that she's famous slash infamous for is when people are not, as they say, rising above. She gives them tickets to Babyland. Um, they're virtual or physical. <laughs> just be like, would you like a ticket to Babyland? So I would just like to preface this entire episode with, yes, I would like a ticket to Babyland, except I don't need one because I'm already there. So, Very good. Okay. Um, nobody, nobody else needs to say it because I already have. <laughs> Got it. So, what is astonishing you? Well, <laughs> I am astonished by a revelation, a personal revelation. You know, in this season, as we confront once again the deep roots of systemic racism in our country, I'm astonished by the revelation that it is not a compliment to be the first or the only. I haven't always been in this place. And, and that's why I say it's, it's a revelation. There's an, there's an unveiling happening for me, a personal apocalypse, that it is not a compliment to be the first or the only. You know that for many years, I've been the first or the only African-American in majority white spaces. Uh, when I was in seminary, I was the only African-American Presbyterian uh, on campus <laughs> at a Presbyterian seminary. A um, number of years ago, I pastored what many think is the oldest congregation in our county, a pre-revolutionary war uh, congregation. And, uh, you know, you walk into the building and there's this wall of pastors stretching back to I believe 1517. And uh, to this day, my picture is not on that wall. Uh, and, you know, in my current ministry, I'm the first uh, African American pastor of, of this congregation of wonderful people. Um, and certainly, you know, as I, as I continue, continue to talk about this, I, I want to say that, you know, from the perspective of history, it's certainly important to be, you know, the first or the only because it means the opening of doors, right? I get that. Like, I'm forever grateful for those brave and uh, faithful souls who um, were the first and only in spaces that did not welcome them into public schools and universities and businesses and public transportation and restaurants and sports and businesses and on and on and on. Very grateful. But there is a price to be paid. And, and, and it's, it's more than you think. There is 
the emotional, psychological cost of navigating majority white spaces. There is the risk of accommodating too much. I mean, you can get sucked into and seduced by white supremacy, even as a person of color. There is the risk of a diminished sense of one's own humanity, ability, um, giftedness, because you are in those spaces keenly aware of a gaze that no matter how much they like you, still see you as the other. And so you're, you're, you're working in insane ways to prove yourself, right? Because deep down, you know that others see you as less than, and in some way, in, 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 in some real deep ways, you agree with them. And so you're trying to prove something to yourself and you're trying to prove something to others. And so I'm, I'm just astonished once again um, of this, this deep wrestling that I'm doing. And um, I, I think part of the work that the Lord has given me in this season for my own humanity and sanity is, is, is this kind of recalibration um, to make sure that I am showing up as my most authentic self, my, my most free self, that I'm neither accommodating too much nor walking in, in anger um, or, or, or let's not just anger because there is a, there's a just anger walking in a, in, in a, in a bitterness, um, walking in a, in a, a, trying to prove something to someone. And so I'm, I'm just trying to recalibrate, uh, so that I can in every way possible show up with the gifting that God has given to me in the spaces where I believe the Holy Spirit has sent me to do the work God has given me to do as my most authentic self. If any of that makes sense. No, it, I, I mean, it know. really, it really does because I mean, it is not the same. It's not the same, but there is similarity in showing up into a space in a role where you're the first woman to do that work and then navigating how do you not intentionally try to do what you're called to do in a way that um, meets people's expectations, whether that's how you run a meeting or how you're mm -hmm. constantly, I mean, it is like a version of the double consciousness of like what yes. you think is right. And then your constant awareness of how people Perceive. see you. And so how you need to modify what you say, how you say it, the tone that you say it. And just, and I think, you know, it's really difficult because you're not really, um, I mean, you need to be able to be in um, kind of like that flow state where you're totally thinking about 
who God is and what God is calling you to do. And, and honestly, what God is doing. So you're not really thinking sure. about yourself or other people at all. You're just really focused on discerning and becoming aware of what God is doing and then being a part of that. And, and that's hard to do when you're just navigating not only other people's perceptions of you, but also just your own internalized perception of, you know, I mean, for me, it's one of the reasons I hate listening to myself um, or looking at myself on videos or hearing myself preach because, you know, when I'm writing or even in the act of preaching, I'm not, I'm just thinking about what I'm saying. I'm thinking about the concepts. I'm thinking about God. But when you see, you hear a recording of yourself or you, you see yourself, then all of a sudden you have to be aware of, you know, how you look and how you sound and how people are perceiving you. And that is just removing you from a whole level back from the reality of God. And I mean, I, I really identify with this idea that, I mean, it's hard. What you want is for there to be a holy mutual submission between you and the people that you are co-creating church with and the people that you're serving with and the people you're serving. And, um, and so that requires loving them and caring that they love you. Right. And so being open to places where you learn from them and where there's holy rebuke and, you know, being accepting of things that other people know that you don't know and sort of adjusting your own expectations and read of the situation and all that, that kind of healthy mutual submission is really holy and freeing but it can really easily get twisted into this dance where you're constantly seeking validation yes. from the culture that is. And then, you know, it's not that the people are evil or twisted or wrong, but I mean, the powers and principalities that shape the culture are really misshapen. And so there are things that you do, I mean, not even consciously to get validation from people, but the reality is, they might be reinforcing the very aspects of the culture that that the whole body of Christ is called to transform and break down. And I also just really identify, like, how do you watch and sort of walk in a reverent love for people, not in bitterness, but also not like um, hiding parts of who you are are mm -hmm. constantly negotiating that and also not being mad at people for not knowing the things that God has called and equipped you to come into the community to teach. And it's just, I mean, it's really tricky. And I think, you know, the privilege and, and privilege isn't always, I think in a spiritual sense, a good thing, but I mean, the privilege of, of being a white man in leadership is, you know, you just show up as an individual <laughs> and any other type of body who walks into those spaces has to, has to walk in navigating their comparison to the archetype leader who is the white man and also everyone else in their own identity group and in others. And it's just really, um, it's a lot of work, but I mean, I, I do think that it is the work of our generation, like to do the work, um, you know, to be create spaces where the Holy Spirit can heal deep wounds between 
people of different ethnicities and also between the genders and help us to have a right vision of ourselves and of one another and what a holy and healthy, diverse community where people carrying all different aspects of the image of God come together, not to conform, but to have unity um, in their diversity. And that's a really, I mean, there's just no model for that. I mean, I think the early church is a model for that, but, you know, I think believers for so long have traded institutional power Mm. for authentic Christ-based communities that we, we haven't seen it for a very, very long time. Yeah, one of the things I'm aware of is that in that first church I mentioned, that pre-Revolutionary War church, there was just a massive... I'm still mad at them. I'm still so mad at them. (laughs) They had their issues, but there was also a massive failure on my part to show up in a more authentic way. Because when I, you know, they, they say these days, if you see something, say something, where I saw a lot of things. And I didn't say anything and I should have, I should. And I don't know if that would have changed anything. I don't know if it would have changed any hearts. I don't know if it would have resulted in my being there longer, but in retrospect, I wish I had um, been bolder. And so uh, I, I wanna make sure I don't make that same mistake in this current situation especially in this season where we are talking about racism and I hear so much, well, I just hear so many people getting it wrong, right? So these are issues that I just live with all the time. And so there are some people who are having a bit of an awakening, but they speak as if well, they just know what everybody ought to do. <laughs> you, you, yeah. you, you, right. So like I'm, I'm talking to people who still confuse systemic racism with prejudice and they're seeing yeah. everything through the lens of prejudice. And it's like, no, you, you, you really don't understand things as well as you think you do. And uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to navigate. How do I, how do I lead and love um, people and self uh, through, yeah. through these times? Well, and I, I think it's really hard because, I mean, the work of consciousness raising around um, systemic racism. I mean that is the work of loving our neighbor and knowing our neighbor. So it, it is central and it, I mean, it must be done in order for our churches to have any kind of integrity and it's not the whole work. So, I mean, there are institutions in our society for whom the work of overcoming white supremacy, like that is the goal and that is the prize and that is the end. And for us, I mean, there's common ground because we want that to happen as well, but that is not the end. It is not the whole mission, right? It's the means to the end of reconciliation among all of God's people. And so I I think it's really hard because right now, um, a lot of, um, 
white Christians are becoming plugged in for the first time to really gifted and I think anointed um, leaders, many of whom are black leaders who, I mean, their life's work is to teach about white supremacy and dismantling systemic racism and, and white people in general and white Christians in particular really must sit at their feet and learn from them and absorb those truths, but also understand that we may or may not have the same end goal as every secular leader who's working mm -hmm. for justice. Um, and I, I, that's not to say that, I mean, I don't, I mean, obviously it's a, it's not a monolith of all the people that are working to dismantle this system from different ends. And so, you know, some places we might, but some places we don't. And so it's really important to teach, um, I mean, all people, but I mean, especially white Christians who are really sensing the urgency and the depth of this work for the first time to say like, you can learn from someone and you can take the truths that you're, they're offering them. And you can certainly recognize that they are more qualified to speak to their experience than you are, but also, you know, recognize that as believers, we want full reconciliation within the body of Christ. And some people who want to dismantle racism or white supremacy very much understandably are not interested in reconciling with white Americans. And mm -hmm. I mean, fair enough, like outside of the body of Christ. Um, I don't, I don't know how much, you know, why other people would, would want to do that to reconcile with the communities that have been oppressing them. And so that's just a, a different end goal that we have, but um, I think so often people just want to say like, well, that sounds harsh or that, that they're angry or, you know, people are saying um, certain things are true of a whole racial group and, and I don't agree with that. And so I'm going to reject all the truths that they are lifting up. And I mean, that's just a, um, and that's a real loss because there are, for white Christians, there are a lot of people we need to be listening to deeply right now who have really, really hard um, truths to bear witness to that we need to bear witness to. And um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's good. So what, what's astonishing you? Well, um, I mean, the other major thing happening in North America right now is this tiny little pandemic what? <laughs> that people are living with. Is I that know. still happening? And that is actually still happening. That's still um, going on. Oh, I thought that was done in yeah. May. Wow. And, you know, that is um, really real for us as a congregation right now, because we have been meeting, um, we have been live streaming our worship service since the middle of March, just having 10 people in the sanctuary um, leading a worship service that's really similar to you know, our normal worship service. And it's been a real um, gift and privilege to be able to do that. And this week, um, out of the nine people who are in the room now, four of them have tested positive for COVID and the rest mm. of us are waiting mm. for our results. And so um, that's just been really, I mean, hard and scary. And, um, you know, right now people have been ill, but, you know, no one is in the hospital and everyone seems as though they are on the mend. Um, but I, I mean, I feel 
awful as a pastor and, and really just responsible. And no matter how much it's true that we make decisions as a session, and no matter how much it's true that we invite people to participate, but say to them, you know, this is an opportunity, not a command. And, you know, I mean, still, if I had chosen to to lead worship in a different way, then those people would not have been in that room and they may have been exposed to COVID-19, but not through the Grove. And kind of the one thing that I've said all along as our session continues to meet and talk about when and if we'll come back to corporate worship is um, to say, I know that people in our congregation are gonna be exposed to this virus. I just don't want them to be exposed at the Grove. And so, Mm. you know, that happened. And I, you know, it's just been a really hard week and I, I mean, I I don't even, I don't even know what to say else to say about it. Um, I don't, so we're doing worship in a different format this week. Um, Obviously um, recording services and stitching them together and uploading a video. And so that's obviously a lot of um, technical challenges on top of just kind of the emotional, Mm. spiritual, psychological burden of knowing that, you know, people you care about um, have been exposed to this disease and not knowing what we need to do next. And I guess, I mean, I, I suppose that I'm astonished that I am astonished that this happened because I feel like, you know, unlike most pastors, like my my background is in the sciences. Like I've studied immunology. My undergraduate degree is in biology. I understand public health. Like I, I just, and it's not like I have some kind of theology that teaches me that, you know, Jesus loves me. And so other people are going to get coronavirus and not us. So, um, you know, I, I, this is all very predictable. And yet still when, you know, you're, when it has happened, there's just a part of you that can't believe that it has. And it, it's so hard right now um, to figure out what, um, you know, on the one hand, it seems to be one school of thought is, you know, people just need to pick up their lives and, and everybody is going to need to eventually get this virus and most people will recover from it. And then that's how it'll stop spreading. I mean, I guess like the, the one thing I was saying as I've been talking to people is I feel like as an individual, everyone is getting a lot of pressure to like, okay, it's time to resume your life and we need to contribute to the economy and, and people need to, you know, go out and, and live their lives until someone, you or someone you know, finds out they have the virus and then everyone just looks at you and is like, what were you thinking going out <laughs> doing things that, you know, and so... I mean, obviously, as we come out of lockdown and the world picks up, people are going to be exposed and people are going to be passing it around, which is, you know, in the abstract sounds very, you know, inevitable and reasonable. But all of a sudden, when it is an activity that you were in charge of, I mean, it's just a really, it's it's a very, it's just quite a thing to 
to sift through. So, I mean, I think that everyone is um, going to be okay, um, but it just has been a hard week. So, yeah, and one of the things you didn't say um, was that you know you guys were not reckless. You guys took precautions. Like I watched your videos, you were six feet apart. Um, so it, for me, it's, it's very sobering. Um, I uh, was shocked, surprised. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, we did take precautions. We, we did practice social distancing, but I mean, we were doing our worship service, which includes singing and we were in our sanctuary, which is a big space. And so, you know, what was not clear in March, but you know, became fairly clear, I would say mid-May, was if you're singing in an enclosed space where air is circulating, you know, if anyone has it, they're going to expose everyone in the room to it. And so, you know, at that point, I think it would have been, obviously, in hindsight, that would have been the time to modify what we were doing in some way. And, you know, but because we had been doing it safely for so long. Um, I mean, it was just hard to think that probably it was very safe to do that in March and April because none of us were going anywhere except our homes and that space to live stream worship. But then once people started getting, you know, the order to go back to work or go other places, then all of a sudden, you know, what was kind of a reasonable risk to take became not so reasonable. So I just, you know, just been a hard week. Well, I think, and, you know, at least my observation is that um, during phase one here in North Carolina, that people just totally seem to think that uh, things are fine. I, I mean, I drove past the mall and was shocked by the full parking lot. Just really? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really sorry that you guys yeah, are having but I mean, to it deal is, with that. Well, I mean, it is just interesting because you know, I and in retrospect, it doesn't seem this way, but you know, I thought we were being super conservative in that we said no, we're not going to do outdoor worship, we're not going to do parking lot service. You know, mm-hmm. we we did not ever go over nine people in the sanctuary, even when you know it was very you know legal. I mean, it's been legal for churches to do whatever they want all along in North Carolina. Um, so, you know, it's just, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I am, um, I'm just weighing things differently now. And maybe next week I'll feel differently. You know, if everyone is recovered, um, you know, who knows? But I, I think it's just really hard to realize how long worship is going to have to be different. Um, And even, you know, today, just trying to record something that resembles a sermon, you know, on my porch alone, it's, it's just very, it's very difficult to do outside of the context of, you know, the, the order of worship, where by the time you step into the pulpit to preach, you've you've sung God's praises with your brothers and sisters and you've yes. prayed and been prayed over and you've confessed your sins and you, you know, I mean, there's just, it's this spiritual activity and the, and your role 
is in the context of this really unique um, experience of being together with people before the Lord. And to try to do any of those parts outside of that context, I mean, the same words, the same, but I mean, just, I don't know, it's just really hard. So, and and so anyway, so that's what I'm thinking. It, that is what astonished me this week. And honestly, what I'm thinking about is I'm meeting with some small groups over Zoom um, with with people. We're looking at Eugene Peterson's book on um, Ephesians, and it's called Practice Resurrection, but it's really about um, the purpose of the church, the purpose of the church being, I mean, the church is the body of Christ, and in the body of Christ, we as believers grow into the full measure of Christ, grow into the full stature of Christ, you know, come alive in Christ. That's our mission statement. His metaphor is practicing resurrection. And it's, it's just really interesting to be separated from the people that you practice your faith with during this time. And then really thinking about, well, what is it, what does it mean to be the church? And obviously the church is not the building. Um, but I think sometimes we say like, well, the church is, the people, not the building, but it's really not that either. I mean, the church is the community of people who are bound together through the Holy Spirit and in whom the Holy Spirit is doing a transforming, transfiguring work. And so when I think about it in that way, you realize nothing, none of the limitations of this time stops the Holy Spirit from doing um, what the Spirit does in the hearts of believers and yet it's just really hard when every visible measure of being church is taken away. Um, and, and how do we live as a people of God when we can't be in the same space at the same time physically? And I mean, the incarnation, the embodiedness of God is a key part of our faith. And so the fact that our bodies can't be in the same space, I mean, I can't say that just doesn't matter at all. And anyway, so that is what is astonishing me and what I'm thinking about. Mm. You know, as you were talking, um, I couldn't help but think of those Africans, North Africans in the, what, fourth century, third, fourth century, who began to go out into the desert to live these monastic lives alone. And um, in time, people began to go out to see them, to get advice and to uh, get their wisdom. But uh, they spent a lot of time out in the desert by themselves. And I'm wondering if there's some some parallel for us in this season about what, what God is doing in terms of shaping us, not only as individuals, but the church in you know, I don't know um, really you know, how to define church in this season, but um, uh, it's quite I, interesting for me, just in terms of my experience and temperament, and not that my preferences or opinions matter at all. <laughs> but you know, I, as you've said a zillion times in this podcast, you talk all the time about how you're an introvert. Like I am an extrovert. Like I. Really, I mean, one of the things I love about the biblical witness is it's not just me and Jesus riding into the sunset together, right? Like that we are called to be part of groups of people. And 
um, the community of just, you know, I experience God more fully in community than I do by myself. And so, I mean, whatever, like any, anything can be beneficial and edificial for us. I mean, I really believe that. So I, I believe that there's goodness and, and growth and blessing in these days. Um, but it just, it's just really hard. Um, and, and it's hard to figure out how God can work in us when us can't be together. But obviously it's stupid to say on, on no level, do I think that God is limited by physical space and time? So, you know, I just, anyway. Oh, and I guess before you say what you were thinking, I, I just wanted to say the other thing that I am thinking about and really appreciating in this week is um, I borrowed the book um, Stamped from the Beginning from a friend and I've started reading it, which is the first book that Ibram X. Kendi wrote, um, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. And mm. um, I, so I'm really, and we haven't talked about that yet on the podcast, have we? That book, How to Be an Anti-Racist? No, the the stamp from the beginning book. No. Mm-mm. Well, it's really good, and I, I didn't particularly think that I was going to enjoy it, but I I find it really, really, really helpful, and especially mm. for anyone um, who is white and maybe feeling overwhelmed by guilt and shame in these days, because his thesis, which I find to be really freeing. Um, and I think he'd be okay with that. He said, you know, we have this assumption that as humans, we have these prejudices and hatreds for one another, and that that's what comes first. And then out of those hatreds and prejudices come policies that do harm to other groups, right? So if the, the our assumption is like, well, white people just hate black people. And then because we have this emotion of hate and superiority and enmity, then we make policies that do harm towards black people. And he goes through, um, I mean, this is a historical book and he shows that actually it's the opposite, that there is a policy that benefits one group of people and then prejudices and um, hatred are carefully cultivated to support the policy. So, I mean, he just talks about how like historically, there was a slave trade that was very lucrative. And so then people started reading the Bible in a way to support the idea that black people were less than white people and the curse of ham and all that bullshit. And that allowed people then to justify this policy, which was just about economics. And, you know, he points out that the word slaves comes from the word Slav because the slave trade originally was from Slavic people who did not have black skin and, and, you know, that's so deep that the word slave itself has nothing to do with people of African descent. And anyway, so it's just a really interesting thing. And especially he's tracing it through five historical figures, the first of whom is Cotton Mather. And so just looking at sort of the ways that the Protestant version of worshiping Jesus has been intentionally twisted and distorted in order to support these economic and political policies that were beneficial to the group that was in power. And, and I find that really helpful to be able, because I think a lot of times 
white people, one of the things that we're so afraid of when we look at this history is we're afraid that we are going to discover that there's something about being white that makes your heart and soul just intrinsically evil and twisted and prone to um, having this kind of um, hatred and brutality. And so when you when you look at it and say, actually, the hatred and brutali brutality, those were just utilitarian emotions that were nurtured deliberately in order to support this economic reality. It in obviously no way makes the brutality and the suffering any more palatable. It doesn't. But it does make me as a white person feel more hopeful about my own ethnic group's ability to transcend and um, and dismantle the systems that were very deliberately created. Because if we very deliberately created one kind of system, then that definitely proves to us that we can very deliberately create a new kind of system based on other values. So I just am really appreciating it right now. Um, and, and I think it might be helpful for other white people. Yeah, that's good. Uh, give the name of the book again. It's called Stamped from the Beginning, which is a line from a sermon, I think, by Cotton Mather. And, and he, I mean, it was based on that stupid um, misreading of Genesis, this idea that that mm. people of that black people are descended from Ham, and so they were stamped from the beginning for servitude or whatever. I mean, and he just talks about like reading the Bible in that way, distorting the Bible in that way, then allowed people to say that kidnapping, torturing, murdering people was actually a blessing because it allowed them to be quote saved in the process. And of course, you have to ignore the actual history of the gospel of Jesus Christ spreading through the world because the gospel, as we've said many times before, got to Africa way before it got to Europe. Um, yes. But anyway, but it's just this idea that you realize, oh, this was nobody, you know, I mean, some people obviously believed it because it was taught from their pulpits and they swallowed it whole, but it was a very deliberately crafted narrative to support economic policy. And I mean, Kendi is just an amazing historian and he just shows you, you know, when these ideas started cropping up and who started mm. propagating them and how they were involved in the economic systems that they were trying to uphold. So. Yes. And believe it or not, within the past two years, I've had someone in my congregation ask me about the curse of ham. That's how deep, deeply yeah. rooted these ideas are. And, yeah, I mean, and, and the, it's, it's crazy. And the other thing that I think is really helpful is that Kendi is very clear about saying like being an anti-racist means that you just don't believe that any racial group is, is identified with any set of attributes, positive or negative. So you, you just say, it's not true that black people are better at athletics. It's not true that you know, black people are inferior. It's not true that white people are superior. It's not true that white people are athletic. I mean, that you, you, you get to say individuals are individuals. They do not represent racial groups. Um, and, and so, you know, that's helpful as well because it really allows white people, you can start from the premise of I'm no better, but I'm not intrinsically biologically stamped from the beginning to be worse because of my cultural um, or physiological 
you know, inheritance either. Well, that actually leads me into what I'm thinking about uh, this week. And um, so I'll, I'll get to the punchline and then go back to the beginning. And um, that is, you know, why people need to do their work. Um, and, and I've been thinking about the conversation you and I had last week on this podcast about, um, the guy who came to our home to repair our air conditioner. And, you know, you and I've talked about that again, uh, since then. And, um, uh, just as a reminder for our listeners, uh, we had someone in our home, uh, repairing our air conditioner. And at the end of that time, he asked me what I thought about, um, current protests against against police brutality and, and, and racism. And um, I was happy to have the conversation with him and, and walked away feeling like, you know, I might have helped to enlighten someone who was um, really not seeing clearly. And in that podcast, you expressed um, uh, some disappointment that this, this white man would feel the freedom to impose upon me a conversation about racism in my own home. And as I thought about the conversation, what I wish I had said last week was uh, because I thought you made a good point, and um, I, I think you're right. What I wish I'd said is that both of those things can be true, and you, you and I often say that about other things, and I wish I'd said it last week, that both of those things can be true. Um, and, and that's why I began with white people need to do their work. I was happy to have that conversation at that moment, at that time, but not all the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not, in this season where there is a unveiling, there's an unveiling of the racism in our country, there is a temptation among many white people to turn to <laughs> the one black person they know and, you know, just uh, and impose a conversation instead of doing the work of learning history, doing the work of digging into, okay, so where does this stuff come from? Doing the work. I mean, it's great to have those kind of conversations. And like I said, there's a, there are times when I am super happy to have them. If you're listening to me, I'll talk to you about that. But there's more to be done. You, I, I hope white people are not, who, who are in relationship with uh, black people, are not turning to them, asking, asking a few questions, and then feeling somewhat um, justified, right? I, well, yeah. I, I'm okay, because I just talked to my friend and, you know, whatever. But, but there's a there's a deeper work that white people need to do and if and if you'll do the work I think what you just said is absolutely true there is a um, you can find a place not of guilt and shame but of enlightenment and the renewal of your own humanity and a, and a freedom uh, to both see, the the ugliness of racism see how you benefit and then become a part of a people who work against it to work to dismantle it and that, that's just necessary and i i just think that what white i must say white christians in particular mm, need that's to helpful stop, yeah i mean need to stop expecting 
Black Christians to function as a personal Jesus for them, i.e., you go to a Black fellow believer and basically say, I, you know, enlighten me, you know, fix me, um, forgive in, me. I was going to say, and in some way, me. give me an assurance of pardon. <laughs> right. And, and I think just for white Christians, we have to be able to say, actually, Jesus alone can be our savior. So when I recognize how deeply unjust the world is and how complicit I am in it and how, you know, even as I, I know that God is moving the world towards shalom and justice, how, how much fear um, I have and, and just, you know, just the reality that I'm not innocent. Um, mm. but, to, but to be able to put that in the context of the larger Christian story and say, like, the only person that I can go to to seek forgiveness for that is Jesus. And then if Jesus gives me grace and forgiveness, which Jesus does, then I know that, you know, my salvation lies in Jesus, not in my neighbors. And then also... I am now part of the Jesus way and obligated to walk in love and humility and seek reconciliation with my neighbors, whether or not they appreciate that or, you know, make me feel good about myself. I guess the bottom line of this for me as a white Christian is we have to let Jesus be our savior, Jesus be our source of um, forgiveness and life and hope, and then care more about the shalom peace that Jesus is bringing into the world, care more that the system is, the systems are being dismantled, then we care about getting affirmation and validation from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So like yeah. we have to care if we're hurting our black brothers and sisters in Christ. But if, if we're trying our best and, or even not our best, if we're, if, if we're doing harm and someone calls us out on doing harm, we have to just be able to care more about not doing more harm than about, you know, needing people to make us feel good about ourselves because, mm. You know, to the extent that we as individuals are participating in systems that are dehumanizing others or are getting our sense of worth or self from these systems that are false and passing away, that's not the real us anyway. And so someone can love us and, you know, name that truth in a way that can make us feel deeply uncomfortable and even despairing. And we can go and take all of that to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, I have all of these feelings, but what I know is... It's not the job of my brothers and sisters in Christ to um, to not speak the truth because it would hurt my feelings. It's my job to get in line with the good news of the gospel and the coming of the kingdom of God in such a way that I celebrate um, just news of anything that can bring it more fully into reality, even if that's, hey, here's behaviors you need to quit or here's sin that's deep in your soul that you need to seek the Lord's deliverance from. So that's good. So what are you preaching? Wait, no, you've already preached. You've, you've, you've recorded your sermon I, already this week. I mean, a, I'm not sure we can call it a sermon because oh, it's come on. a very different um, reality when you're staring at your own face in the iPhone camera <laughs> as you're recording it. And B, 
I have recorded it. I have not yet successfully figured out how to get it off my phone. And she's the person <laughs> who is putting our service together. So I might have to details. Something else. I don't know. Um, it is. It is one more thing. Also, my computer broke on Sunday. Like, there's just oh, love. <laughs> that is why I'm living in Babyland right now, oh, and I man. just have no. Um, desire to get out of it. I'm just going to stay here for a while in my playpen and pitch of this. So. Listen, last week I was in Atlanta, uh, my parents' home, and um, I was in a similar situation. I recorded the sermon in my parents' living room, and I couldn't get it off my phone. For some reason, my um, connection between my phone and my laptop was no longer working. And my laptop just didn't want to work. And I started to panic. And I am so grateful that my little sister came with her uh, MacBook Air and rescued me. Or else there may not have been a sermon last week. So I I get it. I get it. Yeah. I mean, just... I will never take for granted again how good it is to be able to gather in the same place at the same time and just speak words from my mouth. But so, anyways. so what was your text in your? Uh, main what point? are you? Well, we are we're finishing up Philippians. So Philippians four four to nine. The rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say mm. rejoice. And I, I mean the the main point is just this idea that when things are hard, whether that's a pandemic or hard, like you're discovering, oh my gosh, my whole experience of the world has been mediated by white supremacy and I'm complicit in it and I just can't even face um, how deep it is and how bad it is, then the command to rejoice just seems tone deaf and almost mean. And But looking at that Paul, who's obviously writing from a prison cell, he doesn't say rejoice in your own goodness or rejoice in your good fortune. It's rejoice in the Lord mm. always. Again, I say rejoice. And so even when what we're discovering is life is not looking like it's going to work out for us or what we're discovering is actually we are not the good, innocent bearers of light that we thought we were, we can still rejoice, not in our circumstances and not in our virtue, but in the Lord, in who Jesus is, um, he follows it up with the Lord is near. And then he says, you know, it just tells everybody to take everything that they're worrying and despairing about and with prayer and petition to make their request known to God and trust that God um, will meet us in our despair, whether it's about the world or about our, you know, souls and, and, you know, bring usher in the kingdom of God there. And then he talks about, you know, what we need to focus on, which is whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is noble, whatever is true which does not mean that we don't tell the truth about the things that aren't, but it does mean, I think so many people despair of like you talk about abolishing the police and people say like, well, I know that the police are bad, but like without the police, there'll be anarchy. And you want to say, no, let's, let's focus on the fact that we can learn to live together in mutual flourishing. There are other ways that we can, um, you know, build a culture, other other ways that we can respond to problems without threats and violence. So let's mm. focus on, you know, where we see healing and where we see hope and where we see forgiveness and where we see reconciliation. And anyway, so that is what I did awesome. in eight minutes. I probably could have done it much better in two minutes, just like eight that. Eight minutes. Incredible. 
Yeah, well, it's not good, but it's my first crack. Oh. I'll, I will eventually get better at preaching in this way <laughs> if this is what I have to do until Easter of 2021. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. What about you? What are you preaching about? Well, I'm looking at Psalm 126. It's a psalm of ascent. Um, yep. One of the pilgrim uh, songs of the people of Israel as they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the goodness of God. And it's a, it's a psalm that... Um, talks about laughter and songs of joy and being filled with joy. And the irony is that the, the, the psalmist, uh, the, the psalm was written by someone who's in the middle of hardship and trial as they're writing about laughter, songs of joy, and being filled with joy. And uh, one of the verses that really has my attention, let's see if I can find it. It's um, verses five and six where the psalmist says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Now, the psalmist is not talking about sowing tears, but sowing while you're crying, sowing for the future in the midst of things that's so hard they make you cry. And what I want to say to um, uh, the church is that, okay, let's, let's pray, but let's stop praying for things in which we're unwilling to partner with God to bring about the, the manifestation of the thing we're praying for, right? Yep. So great. Pray about an end to racism. But you need to sow in tears. You, you, you need to plant seed. You need to sow seed. We, in our congregation, we're talking a lot about um, how God is calling us to um, go to the next level when it comes to our outreach in the community and uh, in worship. And there are a lot of people who are saying, okay, we're going to pray uh, that um, our worship will be more joyful and expressive. Okay, great. Do that. But sow seed. Sow seed. So um, I- I'm, I'm looking at this whole idea of being in a difficult season, a season so hard that it makes you cry. And what do you do? Even in your tears, you're sowing seed for the future because you know that because of the goodness of God, and that's what this whole psalm is about. It's about the goodness of God. Because of the goodness of God, there will come a time when you reap a harvest of great joy. Yeah, I mean, it's really related in terms of even whatever is happening, you rejoice not in what's happening, but rejoice in the Lord. And it reminds me of that refrain that's so... um, sacrosanct in the black church in America, that God is good all the all time. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and I think um, the stuff that we've been reading about Ephesians, Peterson has this chapter about the interconnectedness between grace and good works in that passage in Ephesians, where he's saying like, Jesus Christ has claimed us in grace for the purpose of good works. And so the reality is like we, we live, I mean, it's not works versus grace. It's, grace of you know forgiveness and reconciliation and healing in God that then gives us um, both the ability and the desire to do good works not because 
we have to, but just because, you know, we've been turned around on the road of Damascus and this is what we are there for. And like, he has this great image of like grace. It's like swimming. So the reality is like water, you know, it can't hold us up, right? Like grace is the thing that is so ephemeral that it, you know, we think it can't hold us. And yet when you start moving out and trusting on it, it does. Right. But when you're swimming Mm. still, I mean, like you're still stroking your arms, you're still kicking your feet, but it's not the movement of your arms or the kicking of your feet that is actually keeping you up. It's the water that's holding you up. It's just sort of this interconnectedness between grace and work so that, you know, because we have grace, we then do our work confident that what is in us, but not of us is going to give the harvest that's Mm. so much beyond the seeds that were sown or, or even the hope that we had when we sowed them in tears. It's really, yeah, that's good. I might steal that for Sunday. Well, you should, I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. I mean, it's really, (laughs) it's really good. It's all, it's all Eugene Peterson. So, um, well, okay. We've, we've reached the end, right? (laughs) Maybe several times. So, um, we are glad that you are listening and, um, if you would like to check out what is happening at Yolando's church, you should Google Derida Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that will pop them pop you over to their website. And you should watch the sermons on YouTube. Go to the Derida Church um, channel on YouTube or the Podbean website and search mm-hmm. for his messages. And if you want to know what is happening at The Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. Uh, you can listen to the sermons. Well, I don't even know how that's going to happen now that we're doing this differently. But one way or another, we'll get a sermon onto um, iTunes. And so you can listen to the messages at the Grove Church podcast as well. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.